To the um, second Sex Matters webinar. I'm here with Joe Phoenix, Professor of Criminology at the Open University um, and one of the founders of the Gender Critical Research Network and she's launched her crowdfunder for her um, employment tribunal yesterday. Yesterday was it? Sunday morning. Sunday, yes. Two, two yes, days. Two days ago. I, I've been there. <laughs> <laughs> And um, yeah, uh, the Order of the Phoenix or Phoenix <laughs> Rising or. <laughs> yeah, I think but, it's just the Order of the Phoenix or Phoenix Rising hashtag. Um, yeah. I think there was even an I stand with Joe Phoenix. Um, but it's, it's brilliant. You asked me you asked me advice on on um, being a claimant. Um, and one bit of advice I didn't give you is have a really good name. <laughs> In the end, all that all that's left is your name, and uh, you've got a good one. Is, is it real? No, <laughs> no, I'm serious. It's not real. I was born Joanna Healy, um, and when I was in my early twenties, I decided I didn't want the name Healy anymore, and nor did I want to be called Joanna. Um, so I renamed myself by deed poll. It's all official uh, to to Joe Phoenix. Right. So so you identify as, as Joe Phoenix. I do, yes, and as a phoenix. Um. Excellent. Um, so um, I first became aware of you, I think, when you did the Women's Place UK um, uh, lecture about women in prisons and, and the conflict of rights between trans women and, and women in prisons. But mm -hmm. I, I'm guessing, like everyone, you probably had some kind of journey going up to that do you want to sort of tell your story starting wherever you wherever you want to start it okay yeah 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 um i think actually i don't even know where to start it and and that's not a that's not a joke i don't know where to start it uh i was a very political feminist radical lesbian feminist uh, even vaguely separatist for a little while in the 1980s um you know i grew up around the anti-porn campaigns. I grew up around Greenham. That was the kind of political background uh, while I was doing a sociology degree. Um, but when I started doing my PhD, uh, I was uh, looking at uh, sex working women or prostituted women or women in the, the you know prostitution, whichever terms people want to use. Um, I interviewed uh, quite a few women who were street workers. Um, uh, or street prostituted, but multiple health and welfare problems. And I mean, it was just, you know, they had very, very difficult lives with punctuated by poverty and abuse, basically. And, and that kind of took me on a more academic than activist route, because I realized at the time that all of the theories that we had around everything were far too simplistic. And, and they were, forgive me for using this word, deeply ironically, they were rather binary. 
So women were either, um, you know, wholly victimized or they were working. Um, and so that started, I mean, that's 23 years, 25 years ago, a very long time, but it got me doing a whole stream of work around sex, gender, sexualities and sexual violence and, and uh, policy reform, trying to figure out ways in which uh, when we go down those either or analyses, it ends up actually harming the very constituency of people that we're trying to protect. So my whole life has been about complexity and nuance, if you like. Uh, somewhere in 2019, uh, just before that talk, right, just before that talk, um, Kathleen Stark contacted me to ask me if I would sign a letter to, uh, I think it was the Sunday Times of the Guardian. Uh, yeah, th that letter, that letter. Um, in fact, it was those two letters. Uh, I signed both of those. And I was very happy to put my signature to that because earlier in 2019, uh, my university, the Open University, was scheduled to host a conference with the Center for Crime and Justice Studies. Um, and that conference was canceled at the last minute largely because a group of protesters were threatening to protest uh, the conference because Richard Garside was going to speak. Now that was kicked off because Richard had tweeted happy human female day on International Women's Day. So he became, you know, temporarily for a short period of time, Britain's number one transphobe. Um, and, uh, and so my own colleagues in the university uh, basically decided that rather than run the gamut of being accused of transphobia or have the issue of the protests that they would simply cancel the conference. Now, as it happens, two and a bit years later and the Rheindorf review later, I actually think they acted unlawfully in doing that. Um, but, you know, who's counting? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, I am is the answer to that question. Anyway, um, so yeah, I signed those, that happened. I signed those letters because that's where I could see Stonewall's influence um, directly in my own day-to-day -day life. Uh, and then after that, WPUK got in contact with me and asked if I'd do this talk in Leicester. As it happens, it's almost two years to the date since I did that talk. Uh, and uh, that talk changed my life quite you know, without without putting too fine a point yeah. on it. Yeah, I, I think we all have kind of moments that that changed everything. Yeah, um, and, and within a kind of general direction that you probably would have ended up here anyway. I don't know. Do possibly. <laughs> I mean, I think I would have because you know, if you cut me in half, what you'd see in there is. Uh, has researched women, violence and justice forever, um, has a finely developed sense of uh, fair play and justice and equity. Uh, I am, I pride myself, and, and I know this, I hope this doesn't sound arrogant, but I pride myself in being a very ethical academic. Right. I mean, I, I, I'm good at what I do. I don't mean that in a big way. Yeah, head. no, absolutely. And that all comes across. I mean, it, as I say, when I, you know, the first time I heard you give that that Women's Place UK lecture and, you know, someone like Kathleen, but obviously in a different um, uh, sphere, 
you come yeah. across as um you know completely compassionate and you know not about binary slogans and sort of not about um being hardline about anything but really um getting into the complexity yeah. and then uh yeah then sort of as you say that after that after that lecture everything changed can you say what happened next yes i can so uh and this 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 was like an escalation just like that um uh i a senior manager uh, that i work with um asked me to see that individual uh and uh the first thing they said was I'm not seeing you in my blank. I, for legal reasons, I have to make sure I don't actually name names and things like that. Uh, I'm not seeing you in my blank role. This is in a personal role. Um, I was told that what I had done by signing those letters uh, and by speaking for WPUK was to fundamentally breach the trust of uh, the people that I was working with, uh, that the people I was working with were like a family. Um, and my position was as the racist uncle sitting at the Christmas dinner table. Um, and I'll be, I'll be completely honest with you. I'm not, I don't cry easily, um, but I, I cried uh, at that point. I was deeply upset, more because I was frustrated, to be perfectly frank with you, because I kept wanting to say things like, but hang on, we're academics. As academics, we have to be able to ask all questions and assess things from all points of view. Uh, and I was just getting blocked, 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 blocked. Uh, and when I started crying and said that I was actually upset by what was being said to me, um, I was invited to call the counseling line for the university. Um, and uh, so that happened. And then- and Was there any kind of recognition from them that this was unusual, you know, that this was not how they would normally approach you or approach a subject and this quite the right inside of it yeah quite the opposite uh i mean there had been an earlier moment that uh departmental relations and collegial relations were bruised and that was in the immediate aftermath of the conference being cancelled um i I threw my toys out of the cram. I do, alongside the confidence that somebody just mentioned, I do a really good job of throwing my toys out of the pram um, when I feel that there's a point of principle. Uh, and so um, when, the when the conference was cancelled, I quit the research group that I was part of on point of principle. Um, and I wrote a letter to my dean um, and anyone else who would listen to me saying that uh, the cancellation of the conference presented real reputational risks for the university. Um, and what I received coming back was a whole discussion about the reputational risks of hanging out with a well-known transphobe, i.e. Richard Garside. So I knew, do you know what I mean? I knew that I was crossing political battle lines, for lack of better words, um, when I did uh, the WPUK. And then after that, that comment was made, we had a departmental meeting well, actually, let me back up a little bit. The, the timeline on this is a little bit fuddled because things were happening so quickly. Um, but around that time, I got asked by Essex University to come and give a talk 
I was due to give a talk the previous year, but I ended up in hospital because of a stupid accident of my own. Um, and so this was a re-invitation, if you like, from the previous year. And uh, I was invited by the Center of Criminology, um, the then director, Nigel South. Uh, and I said, sure, I'd love to. He said, we'd love to take you out for Christmas dinner. So let's make it in December. Um, and I said, which one of my talks do you want? Right. Do you want the one that I'm writing about at the moment on child sexual exploitation um, and discourses of that? Do you want the one on youth justice that I'm writing about? Or do you want me to give you the kind of first pass of this brand new research project that I'm working on? And that's about prison placement policy um, uh, you know, in Canada, particularly, because I've, I've been working with some colleagues in Canada. And he said, oh, no, that one, that one. So we agreed to the talk back in, it was like the September, October. Um, so then the, the OU stuff happened. Then, you know, some time goes by. Uh, and I'm, um, what I'm, what I was due to do was the Essex talk on the 6th, I think it was, of December. Um, but, you know, the events, the events are probably well known. I'm very happy to talk about them. Um, they've been written about rather a lot. But all we're going to say at this point is that the hours, uh, the morning hours of that day were very, very fraught. Um, I was trying to make the University of Essex tell me that I would be safe if I appeared on campus and that anyone who was going to uh, come to my talk would be able to do so unimpeded. Uh, and they couldn't issue me those those um, assurances. And because they couldn't, they canceled slash postponed it until the department uh, decided to blacklist me. <laughs> and so on the day that I got told I got blacklisted, um, which was a week later, I was also in a departmental meeting at the Open University. Um, and uh, I announced uh, to all of my colleagues um, that I had been cancelled, right? I mean, this is highly unusual in academia. I mean, less so nowadays, but highly unusual. I expected my colleagues to go, oh, no, how terrible. In fact, what there was was just cavernous silence until um, the chair of that particular meeting turned around to um, one of my uh, colleagues and asked how they were progressing with writing a grant proposal about trans rights in prison. Wow. Yeah. So the rest becomes history. Uh, the Essex, um, Essex, I spent 18 months out in the cold, not knowing what on earth was going to happen to my career because of Essex. Essex was used by detractors at my own university to prove that I was a transphobe. It became this kind of circular nightmare uh, until, uh, thank you, my Forstadter the Forstadter ruling, <laughs> right? Um, because when that came out, that's when myself and John Pike and Laura McGrath decided to really push the moment, not push the moment to its crisis, but we decided to form the Open University Gender Critical Network um, and launch it on Twitter with just one little tweet, just one tiny little tweet. Um, but the, the Rindorf review must have been going on while Sorry. I was, yeah, so while my um, appeal was going on, because it came out quite quickly after my judgment, I think. Uh, it came out just before. Or just uh, before my judgment, yeah. Yeah, so the Rheindorf, but that was, but it took uh, 18 months for the Rheindorf review to come out. So from what I understand, 
they had appointed somebody to do the review at Essex, but the LGBT staff, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'll move back. Is that better? Sounds okay to me. Okay. Uh, yeah, so uh, it's also me fiddling about with things. I'm a terrible fidgeter. Um, yeah, uh, they had somebody appointed to do the original review, but that person wasn't approved by the LGBTQI staff network. Um, I, I don't know why. I, you know, I'm not privy to that. That's uh, what I'm given to understand. And then, of course, Aqua Reindorf came in to do the review. She took months collecting evidence. Uh, she herself got ill, I think, at one point. I don't think it was COVID, but she she was ill. Uh, and so it took a very, very long time for that review to come out. What gave Essex the impetus or the courage to do it, you know, which lasted about five minutes after they <laughs> issued the, the um, apology and then evaporated, but they must have had some courage or something compelling you them. You want my personal it. opinion? This is my personal, and this is purely personal. And uh, I, you know, I, I hope people wouldn't quote me on it, but I'm happy to have it quoted. Um, I knew Anthony Forster, uh, the VC, and Lauren Fox Amani, the DVC, from our days together at Durham University. Um, so uh, I know Anthony to be you know, a man actually concerned with process, um, you know, I mean, properly concerned with process. I think he's, I think the university has got itself in a pickle. Um, uh, and I think that uh, he and Lorna, I mean, they know me, they know my work. Uh, and I think it probably shocked them to the core uh, what had happened. Um, and then of course, although I didn't know it at the time, you know, what they did to Rosa would have, Rosa Freeman would have yeah. also shocked them. Um, and, you know, I know from working with Anthony of old that he will want the problems out in the open. So I think, I think actually, you know, he was like that because it is the only way to deal with a problem like that is to bring it out into the open. Um, of course, what happened afterwards, <laughs> you know, is... Yeah, that was that was extraordinary. And, you know, this whole thing has been like these kind of waves of um, sort of breakthrough and euphoria and, you know, moments when you feel like the grown ups are back in the room or, you know, somebody says something in a way that is how you would normally deal with difficult issues. Yeah. And, you know, and it's like, you know, the sun breaks through the clouds and then the next day it starts pissing it down with rain you know, <laughs> yeah. you know the yeah. day jk rowling published her essay and i think you know we all thought oh okay she's hey. it. <laughs> yeah. and she's you know talking about people know you're a good person you know how many people know that jk rowling's a good person and who've had their careers made by her and yeah. you know and yet still you know, when she made, as you said, you make the announcement that you've been cancelled and everyone suddenly starts looking at their, looking Feet. at their shoelaces. Yeah. But, I mean, you must, you must know this, it's, it's very difficult, unless somebody's had the, the experience of it, it's very difficult to describe that flip. Do you know what I mean? From, oh no, this is normal, we're just talking, 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 and then suddenly, boom. Yeah. The yeah, stones. Absolutely. And I think, you know, it 
it comes down to leadership you know in that meeting if your head of department who or whoever was the the top yeah. dog in that room had said something else other than um yeah. you know where's how's the grant on trans rights going yeah everyone would have followed yeah. but because he didn't nobody followed him yeah yeah and and i think that that you know I think that's what was happening with the Rheindorf review. And I have to tell you, during those two years or 18 months that I was waiting, I was sending so many emails to Essex saying, please, you've got to get this out because, you know, my career has a cloud over it at the moment. And I, you know, being the sort of person I am, believing in, in universities and professionalism, I was very prepared to trust the process. And not so prepared anymore, but, you know, <laughs> At that point, I really was. And so the Rheindorf Review was published on the 18th of May, um, which is slightly before your yeah. ruling, wasn't it? Yeah, no, that's right. I think, I mean, I, you know, I've been through, obviously, my tribunal and the appeal, but alongside that has been a whole other process of complaints against me at the Scouts and then my complaint against the Scouts for the way that they treated me. Um, and I've trusted that process less and less. But I think, you know, this thing about using the processes, I think, is really important. And, the, you know, the, um, do you know the Vaclav Havel um, essay about the about the fruit and veg, yeah. um, about about the signs and the, the fruit and veg stalls who who put up the signs yeah. saying trans women are women or yeah. <laughs> I don't think that's what they were saying in Czechoslovakia, but um, yeah. Um, you know, and he says the thing that distant movements do is use the processes and force the processes to show things, to show what's not working into the open. Yeah. Um, but it's really punishing on the individuals who are caught in those processes, and yeah. it, it takes years. And I think, I mean, that's the thing, because, you know, I mean, thank you to you and a number of others, because, you know, I was just waiting around alone for the last few years, to be perfectly frank. Um, and that's largely because I thought that I'd left any activism behind, because I was trying to be, for 23 years, a serious scholar who understood the difference between, you know, activism and the, the creation of knowledge, or, or at least understood where you were doing one or the other. And I preferred to do uh, the creation of knowledge stuff quite frankly. Um, so I, yeah, I, I was kind of alone. And then um, I, I tweeted about the Rheindorf review and it went, it went crazy, didn't it? It went crazy. Never seen anything like that. Um, yeah, that was an amazing moment. And I don't, I don't know what it felt like to people on the outside, but I just kept looking at my Twitter feed. You know, I, I was lucky. I had like, you know, 200 followers at that point. <laughs> you know, and I considered myself <laughs> really lucky. And it just went, Poof yeah you know crazy um but going back to the the less happy story so Rheindorf comes out that was elation rosa and i start working together and we start getting the message out about how brave essex university was to publish that and we try giving them lots of praise because you know if people like me punish them for doing the right thing then it creates even more of a disincentive to do the right thing so I tried to get a lot of promo material out there to say, you know, well done, Essex. Well yeah, done, Essex. Yeah. Um, uh, boy, I feel foolish for doing that now, <laughs> quite frankly. Um, 
And then we launched the OU GCRN, um, and I see one of my colleagues is in the room at the moment. Um, so hello. Uh, yeah, we launched the OU GCRN, and then a little bit like you know the batshit craziness after the Reindorf review, it went crazy, um, and the level of targeted harassment against each and every one of us was something really quite to behold. Um, there was uh, at least four open letters at one point, uh, one organized by um, uh, some of my direct colleagues, uh, one organized by the student union, one organized by the part of the university that hosted the website um, that our special, it's called a special interest group, but it's a research network, that our research network had a, a home in, that part of the university wrote an open letter and then some of our neighboring research groups got together and decided that if the convener, the director of that research unit wouldn't kick us out, then they'd all leave and write an open letter. Um, so and one and one by the LSE. Oh, yeah. And yeah. one by the LSE and one that I found out about today. Uh, well, I think I knew about it at the time, but I was in such shell shock, I forgot. Um, that is actually on a Wiley publishing website because it's the gender for, it's the journal, an academic journal, uh, gender for work and organization has an open statement defaming us um, on, on, a, on a publisher's website. Uh, I mean, it's, it's just extraordinary. It's, it's extraordinary. exhausting. Um, there's a question here. I'm going to chuck it in because I think it fits here. Um, it, comes from somebody from it by email I think and she says like so many others like Rosa, Kathleen, Selena you seem a really unlikely target for vilification why do you think such vitriol is reserved for those women who speak most reasonably and can present a rational argument supporting their positions <laughs> I mean the answer is kind of in the question but you you may have some um, insights yeah, there, there's nothing like a moderate, rational, tight argument to drive people crazy, <laughs> quite frankly, you know. And from my point of view, I was talking to an old friend literally earlier today who was on somebody else's uh, Twitter feed, someone who runs another uh, network uh, that is an acronym for uh, alcohol, um, who tweets off at night at night. Yes. Um, yeah. And this old this older friend of mine was trying to help ask me to explain, just to explain their point of view. This is a very eminent academic, I have to say, who was asking me to do this. And the more I tried to explain, the more this eminent academic was saying, but Joe, that makes no sense. You know, so why is it that we're getting targeted? Because we have the answers and we have the critique. And it's I think that it's as simple as that. It's as simple as that. Uh, we're not shouting. Uh, we're just simply doing, you know, practicing our craft. And our craft is honing our minds, doing critique, making arguments. Uh, and a lot of our detractors, they're, they're more, you know, I'm going to say this, I don't think this is defamatory because there's no people I'm mentioning, but much what I hear coming across from the other side is very little more than propaganda. It's just the continual restatement of, of a position uh, with yeah. nothing behind it. Yeah. And that, that thing that you described in the beginning of this kind of circle of condemnation 
where yeah. you know, at the heart of it is something so mild and so defensible yeah. and yet you know people have kind of lined up in a circle to say well if you know if Essex cancelled her then she must be bad and if you know if so-and-so's writing a letter about her then she must be bad and yeah um, I mean I think where I got into trouble and where all of us have ultimately where it all started is we all had the temerity to criticize Stonewall do you know what I mean in one way or another yeah yeah I think I I think that's right. I mean, I also I've kind of thought about what it is that I did, what it is that I said, because obviously I've I've gone through all of my tweets and everything that I wrote and yeah. my has never said to me, this is the thing that you did. And I think the thing that I did was not apologizing because it's not about the thing that you did. It's about your action after the thing you did. If, you know, if whatever reasonable thing you said caused people to attack you if you then capitulate and apologize and abase yourself and say I'll, I'll do better and I'll educate myself and um then you survive but if you don't um if you don't apologize then then you have to be destroyed that's what I've that's what I've come to um think it was and I've seen you know I've seen so many other people go go through that yeah. you know so all of the stuff about misgendering or you know you've you've caused harm or you know it's not it's that you yeah. won't apologize for yeah. saying that there is um corruption yeah. and abuse well, and you know stonewall is the you know is at the sort of apex of that system i think but there are a lot of other players as well yeah. um i mean i got i was asked to um apologize to my main harasser twice Right. Um, and uh, my main harasser is not at the same. Uh, I, I'm a very senior academic, um, not just because I'm old, uh, but because I've done a lot and I've collected pretty much every glittering prize there is to collect, um, which has been, you know, I've had a wonderful career. But one of my main harassers is not so far along. Um, and uh, it has been suggested to me and indeed just yesterday on Twitter, I believe, uh, it has been suggested to me that I am abusing my position as a senior fellow. Uh, so I, and I, I refuse to apologize. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, and then there's the other thing that, well, if you're still standing, you know, if you're still, a, if you're still alive, if you're still um, able to open your mouth, then then you've not been canceled and, and nothing bad has been done to you. Um, Maya, how do you cope? I mean, I, I know this is, you know, we're supposed to be yeah. talking all but how do you cope with that? Seriously, it drives me crazy. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think mine, you know, I think mine was much quicker in terms of, you know, mm -hmm. losing, I, although it took me, it took six months for me to lose my job. And that was the worst part because I was on my own and I didn't know what was happening. And I was kind of trusting the process within my employer, mm -hmm. um, although the process was very, you know there wasn't much of a process but i was trusting that good people who i trusted to be rational and who i honestly don't you know i don't think any of them believe any of this mm. um i had sort of thought it would be all right mm. um so so that six months was was the most painful part and then but then once i'd lost my job um and then launched the crowdfunder and sort of you know 
come out on the other side of the of the mirror or whatever um it was just quite it, it was a completely different place um and i lost you know i've lost trust in so many institutions and so many people um but i haven't had to try and hold on to that trust whereas i think if you're in an organization trying to hold on to it trying to keep it going um it must be it must be so much harder and you know i look at kathleen stark for mm. example um yeah. you know i mean if someone's inside an institution and inside a career yeah. they yeah. can be tortured um, um, I, I mean you know i i because one of the harassing events that happened was a an open letter that was on google docs it was about every member of the OUGCRN. But it had the evidence was the podcast that I did with Julian Vigo, uh, and I had misrepresented parts of that podcast to, to make it out that you know I was I was hideous and horrible. Um, now that was a staff only letter, uh, and the last time I saw that, it had three hundred and eighty signatures on it from across the university. Um, it was that open letter that tipped me completely over mental health wise you know and i don't mind admitting it i was i was you know off my box for pretty much most of june um i was also recovering from my mother dying and from having my spine fused so it was it was a horrible collision of terrible events uh, and uh, yeah that tipped me over the edge and the reason why this is why my heart broke for kathleen last week i mean proper broke for kathleen last week when you realize that these scurrilous and pernicious stereotypes have been spread to every corner of your working life, mm. you suddenly come to the realization that there is no going back to any place of innocence ever again. Uh, and that there is no place of, I hate using the word safety because it's so misused at the moment in universities, but there is no place that is free from the weight of all of this in your career um, you know and i think that's the real heartache that one's the difficult one you know i mean you you have you you're more like my namesake Maya. you have risen from the ashes and you are in full flight you know and it's wonderful to see that i you know i like to say that i'm rising from the ashes but i've still got 10 more years in universities to go and yeah you know, me kathleen where the hell can we go where these people aren't going to be attacking us all over again mm -hmm. yeah and and you know to turn this around we, you know we can't all be outside of these systems we have to be inside these systems we have to be inside these organizations we have to be inside careers and you know that's I mean, there's nothing I could do. I am, you know, I am an academic through and through. I'm not fit for the real world. <laughs> you know, it's just, they've made institutions called universities for people like me, <laughs> you know, so I need to be in them. Um, and I think the real, you know, the thing for Kathleen, I think they have so ramped up uh, what they, what they, they meaning the protesters, have so ramped up their protests that I don't know, even if I was the VC of Sussex, I don't know what I would do or how I could protect Kathleen. You know, I'd be, I'd be talking to my lawyers about a massive payout because, you know, how else does somebody at the top of an organization square that unless they call in the police and say, we're not going to have this paramilitaristic 
protesters shooting off flares on my private property. Um, you know, I don't know why he hasn't done that. Yeah, but and like but like you say, I mean, this has been going on for at least two years at Sussex, you know, at least two years at the Open University. And, mm. um, you know, if it, it seems like if they had said no early on, mm. you know, without letting it escalate to where it's got, they could have, yeah, they could have said no. But now it's, yeah, it's quite difficult. It's like, you know, how do you get there? Well, well, I wouldn't start from here if I were you. No, but can I do a little plug here for the Crowd Justice Funder? Yes, because, you know, one of the things, one of the reasons, you know, I'm doing this, I'm taking the OU to the tribunal floor, all sorts of reasons, some of them deeply private and personal, uh, but mostly because we need our universities to have the resources to be able to say, no, that's harassment. That is not protest, that's harassment. Um, and, you know, it is my undying belief, and I hope the, the tribunal will show this, that vexatious claims of transphobia without any evidence are harassment, full stop. They are not protected speech. Um, and so I think that if we can get a ruling to that effect, then that then gives university managers the ability to net all of this shit, all of this stuff in, in the bud. And that's, that's what they need to do. I mean, if they if they let it go, if they give it credence early on, it mm. you know it's like don't let the zombies in. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, and, and yeah, there is a problem in universities though, and I know that you know we we want to be able to talk about next things. There is one really big problem, to my knowledge, and I and you know we need we need a lawyer here. If only we had a lawyer, um, but uh, to my knowledge. Yeah, there is there is yeah, there is nobody or no university has the processes or procedures in place for academics to be able to take students through a procedure for harassment students can take academics mm -hmm. but not the other way around so i think there's something in law that's strange about the you know the the, the clientage relationship between academics and students that has to be sorted out um and is that, I mean, you know, I guess in the same way you can't take your customer to, yeah. you know, to court for harassment, but you can say, I don't want you as a customer. Yeah. You know, you and the, the university is the intermediary between the, yeah. you know, the, the, um, the talent, you guys and, and the customers. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, you know, if the universities knew that uh, they'd be failing on their duty of care to their academics, if they didn't step up disciplinary procedures or whatever against students, um, then that would be great. But at the moment, you know, it's just open warfare on academics because no university manager, I mean, look at what happened at the University of Essex, for goodness sake, you know, no university manager is going to take on, you know, the, the kind of, the, the more extreme end of the lobbyists at the moment. Um, it just whips up too much discord and foment and conflict. And it's much easier to, to kind of throw your two or three academics, you know, under the bus than the 400, 800, 1,000 students who are complaining. You know, I, I don't know, I wouldn't do that. I was gonna say I'd do that, but no, I wouldn't, um, <laughs> I wouldn't do that. Um, you know, and what and, do you think the balance is? I mean, you know, mm -hmm. so there, there have been 
open letters before on both sides um and there are you know there have been a couple more um over the last couple of weeks there was the the legal academics letter and then there was the one that, that sex matters coordinated to the ehrc and we were seeing you know names on there that we hadn't seen on previous letters um you know and so there are you know there there are the people who sign the the letters condemning you and there are the slightly growing group of the people signing the the sort of be brave letters yeah. and then there's a whole lot of people in the middle Go ahead, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. are they you know sitting inside the university how does it you know how does that look like to you what does that middle look like to you um, I, I oscillate. I, I'm going to be perfectly frank with you. I, I oscillate. Uh, for the most part, I think uh, I can think directly of a few colleagues who think it's a marginal interest. Do you know what I mean? They don't recognize that this is the world that they are living in um, and it's going to impact them. Not, not, it's not like, you know, that first they came for me and then they're going to go for them. Mm. Uh, it's about the degradation of academic culture and the degradation of academic freedom. And, and you know, this is this is what I keep saying and that I am a professional academic, first and foremost. That is my my, you know, kind of allegiance here is, you know, both my politics, but my professionalism um, and uh, academic freedom is not visible. Full stop. End of sentence. You know, you cannot club the knowledge base of a country or a university according to politics. You know, I mean, it was the Catholic Church of Galileo many, many years ago, and now it's, you know, sex. Um, it, it's amazing. <laughs> you just can't do it. And I think that there are a lot of academics out there who actually don't realize what's at stake here. They think it's just, you know, the gender wars, a culture war over there they don't realize that this this is much more fundamental so i think there's there's that but then there are a whole swathe of academics who are genuinely afraid genuinely afraid um, you know there's i've had at least at least 10 emails from very senior academics in the last 48 hours since we launched the crowd justice fund saying i didn't have a lot to give this month i'll give more i couldn't put my name down I'm too afraid. Yeah, I hear that too. Yeah. Um, so that's how it looks. Uh, from my point of view, I see the, the I hear the distant um, thunder rolls. Uh, it feels like it's coming to a head. Um, do you know what I mean? If, if this is a battle, it feels like it's coming to a head. I was so delighted to see Karen McAvoy and Tim Newburn's name on that letter that you organized. I can't to the to the um, EHRC. I can't tell you how delighted I was. Karen McAvoy and Tim Newburn, they are very senior scholars. They've held very senior posts. So to see those sorts of names mm -hmm. coming out, I've been contacted on Twitter by a few other fairly serious male. It's always male. I was gonna say in men. I mean yeah when men see this senior men i think that makes a difference it, it it does but you know i feel really ambivalent when we say that because it's like what you know i only get i only get people to sit up and pay attention to what's happening to me when a man talks about it <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know, i'm sorry yeah it's an irony but you know in in these sorts of wars i'll take all the support i can get yeah. um, 
you know, but you can see the kind of forces gathering and playing out on the battlefield. And you can see where the lines are beginning to develop. Um, and I see a lot of people who are going to be forced to pick a side at some point. Um, and it's going to be really, really nasty in universities. I think it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. Frankly. And do you think that Kathleen Stark, it feels like the Kathleen Stark, what's happened, you know, what's what they've done to Kathleen Stark has been awful, but it feels like that has opened more eyes and made more oh. people think, you know, yeah, I need to take a stand on this. Yeah, I think it was, you know, I don't, and, and I'm, I'm not speaking lightly because if I was Kathleen Stark, I, I don't know, I, I don't know how she's coping at the moment, you know, and all I can send is big love uh, to her. But uh, I think it's a, a, a pivot point, to be perfectly frank, uh, because I think, you know, to use the language of Twitter, I think that peaked half of England, uh, yeah. if not half of the UK, uh, because it is such, it was so over the top, and because it is militaristic, um, you know, so I think, I think there is a turning point, and, and I think it's going to feel like we're moving forward. But, and, and I think that's great, but I think that's like the general groundswell behind. But as it reaches the battleground, if you follow what I mean, if you can play with the metaphor a yeah, little bit yeah. more, as it reaches the battleground, then that's going to get really bloody right there. Um, yeah. And it's going to be lawfare. Uh, you know, this is going to be fought out through the courts of law. Uh, so I think we've got, you know, another 18 months, maybe two years. Because there's quite a few cases now, aren't there? Yeah, that, I mean, there are cases coming up. That, that haven't been announced and now I think there will be more I mean I you know there are lots of people going through disciplinaries and you know being harassed at work and trying to get through it and who won't end up in court but yeah. I think there will be more people in court and I think you know there will somebody will need to sue their trade union um you know that there will need to be more um yeah. cases in different in different sectors yeah. And, um, yeah. There's there's the lawfare, but there's also the the sort of war mm. of attrition on people's mental health and people's reputation, yeah. um, which is you know is getting even as as you say we're, even as we're kind of winning and it's in the open and and mm. you know when the arguments are in the open we're winning the viciousness of this on the people who are most mm. exposed becomes so much stronger and you know i was thinking about the the conference we were both at philia over the weekend and you know there were people outside drawing great big penises mm. on the ground and you know we talk about harassment and people are trying to find what is that awful thing that i said that harassed somebody who doesn't exist mm. um you know this this sort of idea that we are the harassers and yet people can can draw you know obscene you know fuck turfs and and obscene things on the ground on a place where a vigil was going to be held and that they are the good guys and that that is amnesty international yeah. um it's yeah it's, it's, it's mind-blowing uh it's it what it is you know and it's and i think it's one of it's one of the things that, I mean, I've struggled with it for two years because, you know, I've had all sorts of, well, ever since Essex, really, I got told that I made people feel unsafe. Um, to all of you people out there in viewer land or in the listener land, I'm five foot two. 
There is a thing, I think, about turfs being small, if I can <laughs> use that language in a yeah, small, you know, there are a lot of small women in this. There, you know, there are some big women and, and some amazing big women. But yeah, I mean, you meet some people who have stood up to this and just think, yeah, you know, physically. Yeah, how do I make people feel unsafe? Yes, exactly. Yeah. But, you know, um, and, and the other thing that I say to that, too, when I when I hear that from colleagues who I've had a number of colleagues over the last couple of years who have tried to be interlocutor you know, kind of an intermediary between me and the other side. Um, and they'll say, oh, but Joe, you know, you make them feel unsafe. You make them feel unsafe. And, and you know, they find those ideas really toxic and offensive, right? And my answer is always the same. Well, I find the idea of capitalism and inequality and violence against women offensive and yeah. very disturbing. Um, do, do you know what I mean? It's like, I'm sorry. I feel very unsafe by a lot of, I feel unsafe. So it means I need to do something. <laughs> do you know what I mean? That needs to inform my politics. Um, so yeah, uh, I, I, yeah, that's one of my little yeah. bet noirs is that whole kind of unsafe and making people feel unsafe. So um, I wanted, I've gone back to the questions and I want to kind of jump back into the real world for a minute, yeah. the academic world. And you know, your yeah. story links the, you know, the real world policy questions around prisons and the craziness yeah. in academia. Um, so Maggie Mellon um, from Evidence-Based Social Work asked, what would you say are the chief harms of placing men in women's prisons? Oh, uh, that's very, very, very easy. So most people uh, will, they may or may not know the constituency of people who are in female prisons. Female prison, prisoners are not uh, terribly dangerous people. In fact, they're some of the most vulnerable people in the world. I hate that, but I can't qualify it. Somewhere uh, between uh, the, the estimations run between 80 and 90% of the women who are serving short-term prison sentences in Britain's female prisons have histories of violence, domestic violence, rape, battery, child sexual abuse, child sexual exploitation. So the most extreme versions of, of violence against women, if you like. Uh, in addition to that, um, they are people usually with profound mental health problems, often drug and alcohol problems. So we're dealing with a very well-known constituency of individuals. Now, to put a, a, a male-bodied individual, I'm gonna distinguish between all sorts of different categories of trans here. Uh, to put a male-bodied individual who identifies as a, trans, as, a, as a woman into a female prison, whether or not they have histories of sexual offenses doesn't matter. The mere presence of that male body will make some of the women feel very unsafe. Um, and that is because these are women whose lives have been punctuated by male violence. And female prisons, there's a, there's a paradox about imprisoning women in female prisons. Even though you've got male prison officers in there, they often, women often talk about feeling the relief and of not having the burden of male violence uh, in them. So there's that, that issue. Uh, However, when we start talking about self-identification policies, uh, with or without a GRC, but just self-identification, we know that there are, this is thanks to, to Nick Williams from Fair Play uh, for Women, we know that a significant percentage of our trans women identifying men who are currently in the male estate have one or more sexual offenses in their histories. Um, and so to put them in, 
a female prison. I mean, honestly, you're talking about putting a fox in the hen house and forgive the, the, the grossness of that metaphor, but that's what it is. Um, now, there's also another constituency, and we could talk about people who have had all sorts of body modifications, had all the surgeries, do all the hormone treatment, and maybe they've been trans women with a GRC for 20 or 30 years. Well, there's, there's no real issues there. And quite a few women I've talked to who, who are or have been in prison have said, you know, those, there's always been a very small constituency of trans women that are just like them. Yeah? So it's kind of like, okay, so we've got that, but then we've got sexual predators who will abuse whatever system there is to be able to get into a women's prison. They may or may not be, gen, you know, be trans. But they are sexual predators. And then, of course, we've got, you know, this, this um, kind of more contemporary version of trans identities, which are more about staying in a permanent state of transition, a kind of a middle state, not one state to the other, but rather this permanent place of uh, bracketing off any binary, if you like. Uh, all of the problems here are about those people but they're about the needs and vulnerabilities of the women with whom they're placed. Um, so that's it in a nutshell. But if you want to hear more, I would really encourage you to come to the Women's Place UK talk on the 27th of October uh, called A Woman's Place is Not in Prison. Good, good uh, advertisement. <laughs> well, you know, I like to sing for my supper. So, so just, you know, you... Um, make those differentiations between different ki kinds of trans women and that sort of goes to uh this idea of individualized case-by-case -case assessment do you think that's possible or i mean my view is that that institutions need to be able to serve groups of people and the group of people that is men who identify as women whatever surgery they've had is a group which doesn't overlap with the group that is women however close they get and that institutions and rules need to be able to serve serve groups mm. um do you think i mean what's my views solved yeah okay so i'm going to come at it from a different way uh, one of the things I haven't talked about uh, much in the public domain is that other area of research that I am very well known for, and that's a critical take on risk assessment uh, and needs assessment analyses in criminal justice contexts, particularly in the context of youth justice. Right? That's, that's, I've built up a whole career on, on that sort of stuff. So the current way that we have of dealing with uh, a, a risk and need assessment on a case-by-case -case basis is hopeless. Right. I mean, it should not be. Um, it is much easier to create those group policies than the individual risk assessment. The individual risk assessment is normally based on almost like a, a composite. Right. So mm -hmm. most women offenders have these risk factors, these risk categories. Most male offenders have these, these and these. And of course, a trans individual sits in between both of those risk assessments. Uh, and those risk assessments take, take an epidemiological approach uh, and an epidemiological approach within this context of criminal justice actually doesn't work regardless of what people think. You can't predict, well, you can. I'm going to say one sentence and then contradict myself. You cannot predict people's offending with one exception. 
the single greatest predictor of offending is sex. You know, yeah. and, and that's been the way through history. You know, um, most, most of it is 85 to 15 ratio. You know? Women basically don't commit crime, men do. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, I was looking at the um, response, you know, we did this petition, uh, um, Claire uh, um, Dominion launched, yeah. launched the petition um, to ask the government to record sex accurately for um, violent criminals. Yeah. And the answer that came back was completely incoherent um, and, you know, but basically said no we will we'll record gender some places will record legal sex nowhere will we record biological sex but we will do risk assessment yeah and how you know how can you do risk assessment if you cannot write down what someone's sex is no so you don't know which because i mean you know at, at the most basic risk assessment tools are divided male female adult children right like, that that's it you know so which which shelter which shelter do you go to yeah yeah but so, also this flies in the face of knowledge i'm sorry it's just such an anti-knowledge approach because you know we we have 200 years of criminological analysis about violence about you know patterns of offending we know an awful lot that doesn't necessarily need to be put into a risk assessment there's another question to ask here, though, Maya. There's another way to solve this problem, and that's stop the over-reliance on prisons. Do, do you know what I mean? It's yeah. like we yeah. often go straight to where should we put these people? It's like, well, if we get rid of most prisons for most people and actually only incarcerate the very seriously dangerous, um, you know, because most, most women who are in prison mm. serve sentences of less than six months. This means that they are tried in the magistrate's court, which means they are tried for petty property offences on the whole. Um, those people don't need to be in prison. Yeah, so we wouldn't start here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. where would you start? Not here. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I want, I want to ask you another question that's coming. This is from Natasha. Um, it's a question for you, but also for me, which is if you knew what you know now that, you know, the good people, the people you trusted to be rational would turn out not to be, or at least not to be brave, um, would you have still spoken up? Yeah, this is the hill I was always going to die on. If, there's a, if there was ever going to be a hill that I'd die on, it would be this, because it's like I said, you know, it's about feminist politics, it's about women standing up, it's about voices, it's about ethics, it's about professionalism, and it's about academic freedom. And all of that feeds into dem democracy. I know those are all big words, but yeah, no, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I think um, you know, it's about truth. It's about biology, and ultimately, you know, that's that's what we are. We're we're evolved evolved apes, and if we can't know ourselves and talk about ourselves, then you know, how can we know anything else? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, I mean, for me, and uh, now, if the question was slightly different, um, I might answer it differently. So if the question was, what would you have changed about the last few years? Um, I would have said I would have got to know you, Maya, 
I would have got to know Selena, Kathleen, Julie, all this amazing, you know, army of people around me. I would have got to know them quicker and I would have had them in place before I opened my mouth. Um, I, I wouldn't have started here. <laughs> well, but, you know, that's impossible. And if you, if you hadn't done it, we yeah. wouldn't have we wouldn't have got to know each other. And that, you know, that for me has been the best yeah. thing. I, you know, I found the best people. Um, yeah that you know this this topic really does filter for yeah. integrity and and bravery yeah um, um so i want to do a final bit of advertisement for your crowd oh where where have you got to on your crowdfunder oh i don't know um will you talk will i just I'll refresh talk, you, so <laughs> so joe phoenix's crowdfunder is at bit.ly slash prof phoenix um and she is aiming to raise 80k i think at least 50 and hopefully 80 to get to be somewhere comfortable with the case um where have you got to we are at 56,416. um that is in uh 48 that is in less than 56 hours so it's not three days yet um my private um goal and ambition and i'll tell you why is to get to eighty thousand by the end of the week um one of the ways that universities deal with people like me is to sweat us out uh, and allow the clock to tick up and the legal expenses to tick up the open university have a very big law firm that they've contracted and this law firm has a terrible reputation um, and so i think the only way they can see that i am absolutely serious uh, is by hearing the voices of everybody who has contributed so far. I mean, we have 2,246 contributors, and most of them are, you know, around, oh, average spend is £24, right? So these are people who can ill afford, probably, uh, to contribute, and yet they are. So I think that's a real show of strength, and if we can, yeah. can break the records. Yeah, I mean, we talked about this at Philia. I read the comments, um, and yeah, it does. It makes me cry. Um, and you know, I hope the other side are reading the comments in all of these cases and understanding what they're up against. Yeah, yeah, I, I hope so too. Um, well, good luck, Joe. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. Um, and uh, thank you, everybody who's joined us. Uh, and I hope you'll come back next month. We're going to be um, talking to Dr. Jagbir uh, Jati Jahal from the University of Birmingham, who um, is a she's also an academic, but her particular area is about the Sikh community. And she's talked about the particular importance of single sex services, everyday single sex services for Sikh women and girls. And I think, you know, that is an aspect of this that has been ignored by the authorities for far too long so i'm really excited about her coming on um yeah. thank you joe for joining us thank you everyone else who's joined us tonight and for supporting sex matters we will win this yay cheerio bye